I think bulls would be happy to see a 3% pullback at this point, just so we can get to a more healthy technical backdrop. But ultimately, I think dips still continue to be bought into early next year. And I, I do think it's possible we see all-time highs in 24 if the Fed can navigate the situation correctly. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. I am still confused, like a lot of you right now. Are we in a bullish cycle or in a bearish cycle? I see data points to both arguments and people are strongly in one camp or the other and I can't figure it out. So I was hoping to get some expert wisdom here. Today, we've got Adam Kobesi on. He is the founder, publisher, editor, writer, whatever you call it, of the Kobesi letter. He's investing himself. He's looking at all these data points. He's a well-known personality on Twitter, on television, across the media, as long as, as well as his appearances and events as well. Adam, thank you so much for joining me and taking time out of your day to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's an honor. Love, love wealthy on. What? So just help me. Help me just get this straight. If you had to pick, are are we going up or are we going down right now? Because I can't figure it out, honestly. It's been uh, a crazy year to say at least. I was looking at the numbers this morning. The S&P's up almost 20% year to date and in a year that probably had more headlines than, than we've seen in decades. Um, but I think it's been, uh, the market has proven its resilience. I mean, speaking of the equity markets, right? The S&P 500 continues to push higher. We're almost less than 10% away from a new all-time high. Uh, does that mean that we're moving a straight line higher from here on out? I don't think so. I actually think we're going to see some choppy price action for the next couple of months, specifically as we're looking to see what the Fed's going to do. I mean, the, the Fed rate expectations have been anything but certain for the last two years. And it's only getting worse now. I mean, we were seeing the base case showing up to six rate cuts in 2020, 2024, when literally a month ago, uh, rate hikes were expected in early 24. Now rate cuts are expected as soon as January or March. So there's, there's a lot in the air. And I think that leads to a lot more choppy price action. But I will be clear. I mean, we're not calling for a major crash. I don't think we're on the verge of a major crash. I just think we chop a bit, maybe drift higher until we have some more clarity as to what's happening with the Fed and inflation. Some people have said on the Fed, the Fed's rate cuts, it's they're only going to cut if there's a recession. Do, do you agree with that point of view that cutting means actually bad stuff is starting to happen because they overhyped? Right. I mean, it's, I think the Fed is is still convinced that they can achieve their quote unquote soft landing. Now, what you define as a soft landing, I mean, there's really no definition anymore. But if if we're saying can the Fed get inflation to the two percent target without a meaningful spike in unemployment and and sparking a recession, I think it's possible. I I do think we do need to see some weakness, and I also think people are kind of jumping the gun again. We've seen this countless times. The Fed has not even mentioned rate cuts yet. Actually, the most recent public appearance by the Fed was Jerome Powell saying we might hike more if needed. Uh, obviously, the inflation data has been more constructive with core down to 4%, uh, headline inflation down to close to 3 But we're not at their 2% target, and the Fed has made it clear they don't want to raise rates or cut rates sorry, too soon because I think, and this has been our thesis uh, all year, the Fed would rather see a mild recession than risk cutting rates too soon and having inflation kind of resurge again. And that would be the ultimate credibility hit for the Fed. And that would really destroy consumer sentiment. So I think, um, you know, rate cuts are still not coming till at least Q2 of next year, which which in, in our view means more chop, but the markets are resilient. So we'll probably see dips still continue to be bought. 
I agree with you. I think it's clear that their intention is not to let inflation get out of control and they would rather overdo it, right? Overcook that one, right? You know, we're not yeah. going to take any risk that inflation is, is going to get out of the bag again, that we would rather have people lose jobs. We'd rather have there be an inflation. We would rather really just hammer this Volcker style a little bit if, if we need yep. to, yep. that that they're, I wonder if there's a lot of talk from Powell that they're not really going to hike. He just has to say it just to keep people at bay, right? Like, mm -hmm. don't don't test me. I'm saying it. I don't want to do it, but I'm saying it. I mean, that's the thing too, right? Fed policy works a lot. A lot of Fed policy, the, the effects are felt before any monetary policy is even enacted, right? The Fed is, just what they say is powerful enough to move markets clearly, as we've seen. And also, let's not forget, if you go back to 2022 or even early 23, the Fed was saying that they might need a recession to tame inflation. I mean, they've literally said that. So it's a recent thing since July or or, or early or early summer saying that we can achieve a soft landing, remove the recession from our forecast. That's fine. And that would be great. Um, and look, we've been saying that July in July, we said July was the last Fed rate hike. We still think that is the last rate hike, but I do think rates are higher for longer, which means just a long pause ahead until inflation is comfortably at or below 2%. I, I want to run through some of your recent tweets just to get a sense of the charts you're putting out there. People can see it at Cobasi Letter, just your last name, and then the word letter. That's the, the handle on Twitter, or X, whatever we're calling it now. First of the pinned one, the pinned tweet, you've got your 2022 performance. You're up 86% last year. You're up 35% in 21. You're as uh, publicly transparent as any as any great you know publicly traded company, any hedge fund, something like that. But can I ask you, how is 2023 going now that we're here in December? How did you end up? It's been a great year. Our our performance report will actually be out in, an, in about a month. So I'll let everyone check that out. But I'm excited to, to, to show everyone how we did. And I, I mean, 2022 was great. And especially in these years where the S&P is up 20%, like I mentioned, um, it's it's an incredibly strong market, right? So outperforming the market is always our goal. Um, and I think, look, with the way markets are trading, with the increased volatility we've seen, I think our strategy continues to shine. Um, and for those who are not really familiar with what we do, we we started about eight years ago. And the whole basis of our analysis is to combine technicals and fundamentals. And eight, eight to 10 years ago, if you posted a chart with technical analysis, people would basically laugh at you. We actually started doing that on Twitter back in 2015. And um, now I think technical analysis has become the roadmap for most traders. M many large funds are using it. We have a lot of hedge funds that subscribe to our content, a lot of individual investors that subscribe to our content just to see our technical roadmap. So um, in a market with an uncertain macroeconomic picture and a lot of volatility, it's been fantastic. And I think 2023 20, is great and 24 is going to be even better. So, so you're saying you beat the market. We don't know the numbers yet. You're, you're not releasing the numbers today, but you're saying you've no, you no official so statement far. yet. But in a month, I hope everyone tunes into our website, thecobaseletter.com, and we'll have all the numbers posted fully, okay. fully transparent. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, what got I think a lot of people this year up twenty percent, but so much negativity in, in the sentiment, in the news, in people could point to a chart that says, "Hey, this is going to break down." Only seven stocks are up. Everyone else on aggregate is down. What do you make of that Of that disconnect? We're up big in a world that had a lot of people talking doom and gloom. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's I think a lot of people have learned, number one, that the stock market is not the economy, right? That's the age old saying. Uh, you can have all the negative headlines in the world and the market can still go up. You can have all the positive headlines in the world and the market can still go down. And we're 
I mean, this is something that I've been very vocal about. The Magnificent Seven, the seven largest tech stocks are basically have become the stock market. So in a year where obviously there are a lot of headwinds, but in a year where AI had its biggest breakthroughs of all time, it's now become the topic of everything. Um, these stocks that were already leading the market higher just got a bunch of more a bunch more gas on the fire, fuel to the flame, and they they continue to push higher. I think that's become the situation. And there's also a lot of question: is that is that a is that a good thing, right? That a few stocks are basically dictating where the market goes. If you if you strip out this, these seven stocks from the S and P, we're up around five percent year to date now. Uh, Seventy percent of the Nasdaq's year to date gain has been fueled by the, the five largest uh, stocks in the index. So. I don't know if that's just the new normal or if that means that there's a major correction coming, but what it, what it does mean is these tech stocks are more important than ever as we head into 2024. For sure. I, you do wonder if you go back over time and you just said, okay, the top 10 stocks out of the S&P 500, how did they do relative to the rest of the index? And I don't know if you have that data or that's a, if that's a future project, but you'd be curious to see, okay, if you go back to 1980, 1960, whatever it is, was there always that? Was it always like, well, the best 10 stocks are going to, they're going to eat up most of the returns. Yeah. That's how these bell curve spectrums work. Yeah, I, I don't have that dead off the top of my head. But if you look at, we were looking at the price earnings ratios of uh, th these seven stocks, these, you know, the magnificent seven versus the seven largest stocks in the dot-com bubble. And we're actually approaching the same level PE ratio that we saw back then, as well as other previous bubbles. But it's 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 always hard to compare now to 2001 versus any other recession because it's it's just a different situation. It's a different backdrop. The companies are different. Tech is more prominent now than ever. Uh, so I, I I don't necessarily have an answer to that, but I think it, it will be interesting to watch to see how this unfolds. If somebody asked you the, the most basic question of, okay, let's say we're basically close-ish to all-time highs here on the S&P 500, are you buying now? at the most expensive it's ever been, would you be a buyer at that level? Yeah, so we have been um, mainly buying the dip all, I would say since um, around Q1 of this year. Um, and then- There were a lot, a lot of dips this year. A lot of dips. And we we recently turned bearish uh, last week, just looking for a near-term pullback, kind of saying like, look, the technicals are very overbought. We've, we're on this huge run. There might be some profit taking into year end. And also everyone's calling for a Fed pivot again. As the Fed said, they're not ready to pivot. And we have a Fed meeting coming up next week. So I, I think we're due for even a 3 to 5% pullback would be great to see. I think bulls would be happy to see a 3% pullback at this point, just so we can get to a more healthy technical backdrop. But ultimately, I think dips still continue to be bought into early next year. And I, I do think it's possible we see all-time highs in 24 if the Fed can navigate the situation correctly. So buying the dip makes sense. A little bit of a, okay, you're getting bearish. Because So I'm looking at one of your recent tweets, retail sales declined in October yep. for the first time since March, right? So all of a sudden that, that suggests a little bit of a, a directional move. It happens to be the first month of student loan payments resuming since the pandemic now, almost almost four years now, right? More yep. than three car sales falling in October from September, furniture sales declining. That to me feels like a very bearish set of aggregate data. Yeah, definitely. And and here, here's the reality. The consumer has been struggling for the entire 2023. And the market's up 20%. Affordability has been getting worse since 2022. Uh, housing prices and housing affordability, uh, interest rates, everything has been getting worse for the consumer, but the market hasn't reacted to it. And I think that's an important point here that 
I think the market is so fixated on what happens with just literally what is the inflation rate? What does the Fed do? What's happening with corporate earnings? If if there's no trigger on those high-level items, and also consumer spending, I mean, it did go down. That chart did suggest that student loans are, are hurting spending, but the holiday season seems to have been strong so far. And every time that we uh, start to see negative headlines, well, then there's a new record high on Black Friday, or there's a new trend here and there. And could that, that could also be consumers are just taking on a lot more debt, right? I think credit card debt, and we saw buy now, pay later spending on Black Friday hit multi-record, blew out every record in the past this year. Um, just taking on more debt, although that's probably bad in the long run for consumers, it may be fueling short-term corporate earnings, right? More spending, almost like uh, consumers got used to how they were spending during the stimulus era and they want to maintain that, right? So um, it's it's an interesting situation where I think we can still push higher in the near term, but ultimately see weakness later next year or even into 2025. It doesn't mean that right when the Fed gets inflation to 2%, everything's great again and we're, we're good to go, right? There's, it's not, people feel, I feel like people have this, this notion that once inflation is down, everything is good. The grass is greener and we're good to go. Like that's just half the battle, right? Um, so near term, I do think dips continue to be bought. Longer term, I think we will see some, the weakness weakness in, consumer, in consumers and potentially a spike in unemployment start to kind of hinder markets in that economy. It, it feels like there's almost this inequality of these haves and haves nots. The people with money can go in and get Black Friday, Cyber Monday records. The people yeah. who don't, oh, now I'm reaching into buy now, pay later. I'm reaching into debt. I'm unable to keep up. So all like we see all these declines in the aggregate data for general people, but the people who have money can spend more. At some point, that that can't be good for the country. That can't be good for the economy. Absolutely. I mean, as we've seen in every other uh, you could call it crisis or recession in the past, the wealth gap always widens, right? And I think COVID was that ultimate gap. You basically gave everyone a couple thousand dollars of stimulus, but in return, and we were we were tweeting this every single day saying, stimulus will be the biggest involuntary tax in US history. And that's what it became. Um, the, the the worth of a dollar is, is down 25% over the last few years. It, everything has gone up in price. It's permanently higher. And even as the rate of inflation goes down, and I know this is a commonly uh, misunderstood topic, the rate prices are still rising. Even and they're when never the going down, right? Like you're at 25%. So something that was $100 is now $125 and is never going back down to $100. That's, that's it's exactly gone, right. it's over. And, and you're also, so when you say we're, we have 3% inflation or 2% inflation, We've now had two years of inflation. So you have 3% on whatever it was last year, on whatever it was the year on before. On top of 10, on top of 10, on top of 10. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like a compounding effect. So I don't think affordability is going to get any better. The housing market is, is certainly a very unique situation that I'm, I'm very vocal about. And I don't think housing affordability is going to get any better anytime soon. So I think consumers can still feel pain. And I think the... the um, the current backdrop for consumers is not favorable, but I don't think that necessarily means there's an imminent crash in the stock market anytime soon. You've got, you mentioned the uh, the housing because the affordability, you've got this Redfin chart. The income yep. needed to afford a typical home in the US hit a record of 41% in 20, this year. That's double where we were just 11 years ago, right? That's, that's crazy, right? Like you said, on a post-tax basis, homeowners are, home buyers are spending 60% of their income. 60% of their income on home payments. 
you sort of wonder because you know I see it in my area. You see the the price of houses. It's it's mind boggling. I mean, we're used to it now, but it's mind boggling from if we were sitting there in 2012. The idea that these houses would be worth X, but people's incomes haven't gone up, right? People, right. oh, you get a little bit of income, the house price has gone up. Are we going to get to the point where no one can afford to buy a house? That I think we're, we're almost there. Living I, at I, home with your parents forever, and, and we're all <laughs> a nation of renters, and you never get out of it. You're stuck forever. The situation is continues to be a hundred percent a supply driven thing. It's supply, supply, supply. That's all that matters right now. Interest rates going up have had almost zero effect on housing prices. We're down, I think, five to six percent from the all time high, which is after going up forty percent since the pandemic. Um, the the, the situation here is that 90% of borrowers have a rate below 5%, 30% are below 3%. To put that in perspective, prior to the pandemic, only I think it was three to 4% of borrowers had a rate below 3%. It was, I don't, I don't ever, I'd never heard of a single person that had a 3% mortgage um, prior to, to the pandemic. Now it's like every other person has a 3% mortgage. They might even have two houses because the money was free and why not? And why would you sell your house if your mortgage rate is going to almost triple? two to three times what it is now as prices have gone up and affordability is at record lows. So what we have now is existing home supply is, uh, I mean, it's at a 15 year low. We have, um, meanwhile, we have new homes are actually the only option really now to get into the market. I mean, any existing home that is in any decent of a shape basically sells right away and there's a lot of competition for it. So now we have a bunch of new homes and actually, for the first time since 05, the price of a new house is about to drop below the price of an existing home. So a new house will soon be cheaper than an existing home, even as square footage on these new homes continues to go up. So why, why is that? Owner. Why would a new home be cheaper? Is it because the old home people are existing residents and they're just not going to leave? They're they're, and there's no supply. So the only option for buyers right now, if if you go to your market, your go on Zillow and wherever you live, you'll realize the the share of new homes on the market is incredible. I mean, almost every one out of every two houses, I don't know what the exact number is, but it depends on your city. A lot of the houses are new construction. So what are these home builders doing? Well, they're saying, look, well, we're, we're offering incentives now. Home builders are saying, we'll give you um, a three percent, a 4% mortgage rate. We'll subsidize your mortgage if you buy our new house. So, and then new home prices now are starting to come down because there's more demand for them. But then the home builders are now taking on this liability of basically paying half of your mortgage rate on the bet that rates are going to come down. But as we've said, the Fed the Fed wants to keep rates permanently higher for longer, even if they do start cutting rates and not going back to where they were. So now you have a, all this stuff going on in the background. And uh, I don't think prices go down anytime soon unless supply returns. And as rates continue to go up, the, the amount of supply is going to continue to go down. So we might need lower rates for more supply or some sort of external factor to step in. Yeah, you're right. So the only desperate sellers are the, the builders, the developers, because they, they exactly. don't live there. They need to sell it. Everyone else who lives in an existing home is like, I don't need to go anywhere. So unless you're going to pay me tons of money, I'll just sit. So it makes sense that now that I think about it, the only people who really need and want to sell is that new home builder that has to offload it. That's exactly right. And I think the only other way that we get supply to come down would be an external factor, such as maybe a spike in unemployment, um, increasing foreclosures, sending more supply to the market. And right now, the delinquency rates on mortgages are at an all-time low because everyone's mortgage is at 2%, right? So why why would you... It's it's easy to make your mortgage payment right now. But if, if unemployment rises, and, and that's definitely possible with the Fed's policy right now, 
Well, then maybe people start missing mortgage payments or people start foreclosing on their homes and then supply starts returning. And if there's a big, large, a big rush of supply to the housing market, I think prices would come down very quickly. So the Fed needs to be careful not to go, not to, not to let this get too far out of hand on their fight against inflation, because it can definitely spread into other markets beyond equities if, if things get ugly here. You know, speaking of the Fed and, and what these higher interest rates are doing, there's a lot of disruption, dislocation, what people are used to. There's been a big argument on, oh, well, the government's not going to let the Fed have these higher long-term rates because they've got to pay the interest on their debt. They don't want to pay high interest rates on debt. They want to pay very low and so there's going to be political pressure to keep long-term rates low. What are you hearing about that? What are you seeing? Is there was a, the whole freak out of when that 10-year was at five, immediately it sort of snapped back down to under four and a half because they they the government's budget at deficit debt levels where they are literally can't afford interest yep. payments on this. Yeah, the, the, the cost of uh, debt service costs for government debt have almost doubled since the low. And they're they're only going to continue rising um, as as rates rise and and also as uh, the, the only interest rates are not only impacted by the Fed. There's a lot of other factors we can get into that. The the, the government is almost self perpetuating the rise in interest rates from the amount of issuances their Treasury issuances they're doing. But as far as the pressure on the Fed, I mean, in an ideal world, the Fed acts by their dual mandate, right, which is maximum employment and and uh, price stability without influence from any outside factors. Now, are we in an ideal world? Probably not, no. But at the same time, it's kind of like you're weighing two things. You can have governmental pressure because of this mounting debt load. But at the same time, are you going to cut rates and then let consumers suffer? And then you're... So and either it's kind of like a lose-lose situation where if you please either side, you're, you're kind of hurting the other side. Um, so I'm not necessarily, I don't really believe that the Fed's going to start cutting rates because the government is pressuring them to do, do so. And I actually think that the government itself will continue to drive interest rates higher through um, more than $2 trillion in expected borrowing coming up over the next year or so. And uh, deficit spending is is only getting worse as tax receipts go down. So um, I, I, I don't see the Fed cutting rates because of government spending anytime soon. Do you see a world though where you're really concerned about the U.S. government, the U.S. economy, the stability of the country because the debt and the deficit are just so high. And and we're maybe in a world where job growth is not going to continue, right? We're kind of stuck right. on people's housing mobility. Maybe oh, I want to move to take a job, but I'm not giving up this mortgage to go move somewhere to take a job, for example. Are you concerned about, let's call it the future of your kids and grandkids' life because of where we have been going the last several years? So, I mean, look, if you zoom out on a long enough basis on the chart of the USA, we're in a perpetual bull market, right? So to call for like a doom and gloom situation where the whole, you know, I, there was a big narrative earlier this year that the dollar is disappearing, bricks. And I don't think that the, the dollar's status is going anywhere as the dominant reserve currency. Um, I Is the debt ceiling a, a long-term concern? Absolutely. The, de the, the debt ceiling is basically not a ceiling. It's uncapped till 2025. It, it's, it's raised every time that it's met. We're probably going to have 50 trillion in debt by 2033 based on the government's, their own forecast. They literally told us this. So um, I think it is a long-term kind of crisis forming, but I, I trust that ultimately we're, we'll find a solution. I think we have to cut spending and I think we have to not spend more than we have. I think it's 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 as simple as that. Um, and hopefully, 
hopefully Congress and, and uh, all, all the politicians will get that done for us. <laughs> yeah, they always they always do a great job of doing things that are logical and make a lot of long term sense. So I'm sure that will continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got a lot of recent charts on on gold, on Bitcoin. Those are the two things that people look at if they're concerned about government stability, reserve currency status, inflation, the value of a dollar. Where do you see? Because I know you're, it looks like from what I can read, you like Bitcoin. You're not as sure about gold. Yeah, so we um, we only comment on Bitcoin for our subscribers and primarily because it's the biggest currency. I mean, it's become so big now, the biggest cryptocurrency. It's become so big. It's almost a trillion dollar asset in itself. So we figured why not get into that a little bit. And we've been bullish of uh, Bitcoin basically this entire year. We started when it crossed 20,000, call for 30, and then now call for 40. I mean, it's all based on the SEC approving these Bitcoin ETS, which it looks like it's going to happen. Could that, it looks like we might be setting up for a potential sell the news event though, as in the near term, right? I mean, at this point, when is this priced in? Because we know, right? We all know this is coming. So that's why I was coming. Say, like, what, what, what else are people surprised about? Why are they buying now? We all know this is coming. And I think what it, what it comes down to with, with crypto in general, once these coins start running, we've seen it so many times, they'll just go up every single day for weeks on end, like literally without a pullback. And any rational trader or long-term investor will say, man, like, I'm even if I'm bullish of this, I'm getting kind of nervous here because we're not, it's just a straight line higher. But that's just the nature of crypto markets. Um, and I, I think if anything, crypto has proven that it's here to stay over the last couple of years. I mean, it's had I I can't think of an industry that's had more setbacks in crypto since 2020. And here we are, Bitcoin back above 40,000, maybe gonna see 50,000. Um, I, I I do think by the that, time we finish recording, it'll be at 50, right? That's how things go. <laughs> It'll be it'll go down to forty and then hit fifty by the time we finish recording. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then gold itself, uh, we we actually recently initiated some shorts on gold right as we hit twenty one hundred. Yeah, what kind was of, that based on? Was that technicals? Was that overbought? What was that based? It on? It was a uh, technical trade as well as just we we continue to believe that the the markets are pivoting too soon again, and I think that's uh, the Fed's going to kind of put markets back in line over the next few weeks here into January and February, saying. Look, we might start cutting rates. We will we will start cutting rates eventually, but not as, as soon or as many rate cuts as markets want. And ultimately, I think that means a near-term spike in the dollar is coming. Uh, treasury yields are going to probably find, the 10-year will find a bottom right around the 4% range. And then that'll pressure gold prices maybe back below 2,000 an ounce, uh, maybe even into 1,900 into early next year. You mentioned that pivot again. The, you sort of get the sense... From your perspective, you don't think that the market is pivoting correctly. The market's Correct. expectation of a pivot is right. Talk more about that that disconnect on what you think the market is trying to do versus what you think will actually happen. Yeah, so the market has shifted. Uh, if you go a if you go back a month ago, prior to the CPI, the October CPI report, um, we saw rate cuts beginning in. Not we. The market saw rate cuts beginning in J July of 2024. Market was forecasting rate cuts right. beginning in July of 24. Right, and that's where we were in October. That's where we were, and okay. then after CPI came out, um, it moved up to May, and then it continued to move up, and then it kind of moved into March. And then when Bill Ackman came out and said he expects rate cuts early next year, and um, you know, not not calling out Bill Ackman, but I I, I know that specific day. Markets rallied and bond markets pulled back. And then futures now moved to showing the base case, showing rate cuts in March with a growing chance of rate cuts in January. 
And if you look at the at the futures curve, the 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 interest rate, there's there's 125 basis points of rate cuts expected at the base case. There's even probability of up to 175 to 200 basis points of rate cuts in 2024. And in my opinion, that's just far too soon. And I actually posted a survey this morning from um, the Financial Times where they surveyed a bunch of economists and said, when when do you think the Fed will cut rates or how much will they cut in 2024? Uh, the majority of economists saw 50 basis points of rate cuts or less in 2024. So we have almost a 75 to 150 basis point gap between what economists are expecting and markets are expecting. And the Fed is kind of on the side of economists saying, well, we're not cutting sooner than right later. And I don't think fighting the Fed is as a profitable strategy as we've seen for the entirety of this year. So um, I think uh, markets just pivoted too soon again. And we've seen this happen at least four to five times over the last couple of years. So that's fundamentally how all of this perspective connects. When you look at what you're talking about in terms of the S&P or Bitcoin or gold or you know tech stocks in general, it seems yep. that they all are based on this fundamental shift. Are you with the market camp of cuts are coming sooner and, and quickly? Or are you with that Fed slash economist camp of, no, they're staying up and they're staying up for a while? Yeah, no, I think um, I think rate cuts will, will not come in Q1. I think they and I think they will probably start in Q2 of next year. And I don't think that we're going to cut six times in 2024, like most people are expecting. So I definitely would would probably side with what the Fed is saying. And the Fed, what they're saying is they implement the rate cuts themselves. So I, I, I think I'll, I'll believe that more than futures, which have been wrong probably 20 times this year and continue to, to move on a daily basis. Other than the Fed, who they they're interested, you're right. They can say what they want, and they're the ones who do. Like they're the, they're the actors. They are not controlled by anyone else. Everyone else is responding to them. Is there anyone else that you would be reading or paying attention to? For those of us that are watching the podcast right now, watching this interview, where else would you point them to? Other than your letter, right? Other than your letter, like where else should they be reading? If it's okay, if you you want to listen to Jerome Powell, who else do you find is is very incisive in terms of their their perspective on on what's happening yeah i mean i think look i think uh if you're not on x or twitter at this point you're missing out on a lot of very bright people some, some of the brightest minds in finance post free stuff on x every single day with their perspectives so i think if you're not on that that's a great place to look and also i'll say just look at the data to the source, right? There's there's nonstop economic data coming out now every single month. Every report is just as important as as the last one, or more important. And look at the look at the raw data yourself, and maybe come to a conclusion yourself, and then compare it to what other people are saying. Because there's a tendency to just kind of someone is well known, or they believe this, and then everyone will just believe what they say is automatically right. That's not necessarily the case. So. I, I think, uh, you know, get on Twitter, see what people are saying, and then look at the data yourself and compare. And ultimately, you know, like you said, I think uh, our our newsletter kind of does a good job of staying fairly neutral and just objectively approaching markets. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it, 2024 is going to be a great year for those who can just remain objective, look at the data and trade um, trade trade with technicals and, and follow the, follow the, the uh, technical roadmap. This is great. Where, where else can people find you then? So it's the Cobasi letter on Twitter, on X. Then it, yep. what's the website? If people want to subscribe to your newsletter, tell us everywhere we can find you. Sure. Yeah. So all our social media is just at Cobasi letter. We have every platform. 
Um, and then if you want to read more of our premium analysis, we post, we have a private Twitter feed as well as a report that we post on the cobaseletter.com. I'm sure it'll be in the description and you can subscribe there. We also have a free chart of the week that we post every week on our, on our website, which is also at the cobaseletter.com. And, um, you know, from there, we basically post our weekly report with what we're trading, how we view markets. And every day we provide uh, daily updates for subscribers on a private Twitter feed. Uh, with how we're viewing the markets, developments, what's going on with the Fed, and just about anything under the sun that relating to investing. So um, I highly encourage everyone to check it out. This is good. This, I, I like the way you break down that fundamental difference in the two camps, right? Are you with that market camp or that that Fed camp? And you're right, the, the Fed's not going to be bullied. They're not going to be pushed around. They have credibility issues that they want to maintain, and they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And the market can whip around very quickly, like we've seen this year. So Adam, thank you so much for joining me here on, on the show. And thanks for everyone you know, for watching, for listening. If, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed this interview, please like it, subscribe to the channel, share it, post it so that more people can hear these voices and, and the content can continue to get out there. And, and if, if you're hearing what Adam has to say and you're not sure if you trust your financial plan right now and you're not sure you want to do it yourself, you can go to wealthyon.com. You can put a quick email in there and we've got investment professionals that we endorse that you can connect with. It's free of charge, no obligation, no commitment. It's just a conversation you can have if you're trying to figure out, should someone professional be doing this for you? Because you're not sure it's it's for you to be doing it, running full point on your own family's finances. Sometimes it's better to have a pro take a look at it. And of course, one reminder, the, the new show, Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci, it's live Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern. He's going to take your calls, your submissions. So you can go to wealthyon.com forward slash, I'll get it right, wealthyon.com forward slash ask Anthony. That's linked in the description below. So you can get your questions submitted before the show Fridays at 11. So if you don't have questions for Adam, you might have questions for the Mooch or vice versa. So thanks again for watching, for listening, and we'll see you next time.